0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for exciting new books. And this week I'm very pleased to say that we have Alan Salkin on the show, and he has written a wonderful book called From Scratch, Inside the Food Network, Big Personalities, High Drama, the Extraordinary Behind-the-Scenes Story. I have read this book cover to cover, and I have to say it's extraordinarily interesting. Alan did a tremendous amount of of really sort of footwork, really journalistic footwork to get to get the story and, and to put it together in a, in a kind of sensible, interesting, readable narrative. I really encourage you to go out and read it if you watch the, the Food Network. And I know that millions and millions of people do. So it's highly recommended. So I want to say uh, hello to Alan. Thank you for being on the show.
1: My pleasure, Marshall. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So Alan, could you kick off the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I've been a journalist for, I don't know, 15 or so years. I, um, before that, I was a rubber ducky salesman and telemarketer, <laughs> which, um, yeah, what actually comes in helpful being a salesman um, in journalist cause, journalism, because you often have to sell yourself um, as somebody who's safe to talk to, and then, of course, you have to try to sell your book. But um after uh, the rubber ducky salesman thing, I went to journalism school and eventually got a job at the New York Post, which is known as a kind of noisy, tumultuous New York City newspaper Um and working there was pretty much what you think it was like. It's like the, a movie of working in a newspaper. <laughs> and then I was a freelance writer. I wrote for a lot of magazines, um, did some good stories. Uh, one of my most famous stories when I was a freelancer was about Festivus, um, right. the holiday from Seinfeld. And then I got a job at the New York Times writing about – for the style section writing – but I don't know anything about style really. (laughs) But I was writing about um, culture and trends and I think my most famous story from those days – I'll say my best story was probably about men over 40 living in summer share houses um, in Long Island. But the most famous story (laughs) was about Annie Leibovitz's finances, about how the famous photographer was basically bankrupt and that was a front page story in the Times and got a lot of attention. Um, I left the Times about, oh God, almost four years ago now. And as soon as I left, I was casting about for a project and that's how this book came about.
0: Why did you write this book and not one of the other books that you might have written? Because I know you can write about a lot of things. The world's a big place.
1: When I was at the Times, I had written about First, I wrote a story about, like, hipster guys who were starting their own vodka brands. <laughs> and then I wrote about this thing called food bloggers, which, of course, now is totally obvious. There's 50 food blogs in every town, if not 500. And, but at the time I wrote the story, which was back in 06, it was this new thing that they were self-appointed restaurant critics, and they were giving their opinions on the Internet, and there was all this gossip about restaurants. And so I wrote, <clears throat> excuse me, I wrote a story about those people. Um, some of whom have – almost all of whom who were in that story have sort of gone on to be stars, some with their own television shows. But what happened was there was a guy named Lee Schrager who um, runs the – was running and does run the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, which is basically the Sundance Film Festival of the food uh, television industry. Um, And he saw that I was writing about these things and decided – I want that guy to write about me. And he hired a an a, a, um, PR person, publicity person who kept badgering me and saying, <laughs> you got to have lunch with this guy. You got to have lunch with this guy. And um, we went, finally I said, well, okay, it's a food festival in Miami. And uh, by the way, I really like warm weather. Um, and I, I hate the, the winters in the Northeast. Um, so I said, well, when is this festival in Miami? February. Okay. Sounds interesting. <laughs> I'll have lunch with him. So, I went and had lunch with Lee at Esca, which uh, at, at where I've never had a good meal, by the way, which I probably shouldn't say on the record, but there it is. And um, I decided, okay, it sounds pretty interesting. He's got all these stars there. He seems like an interesting guy. And I pitched it to my editor at the New York Times, and for some reason, he went for it. So, um, anyway, I flew down to Miami, um, just as a pretty, you know, uh, newbie. Uh, reporter at the time. Well, I'd been there actually to be honest a year or two at that point. And, um, I was absolutely amazed. Emeril Lagasse had just made this deal where he had sold his businesses to Martha Stewart for $50 million. A lot of money. Um, and I was just amazed. These, these chefs had, um, talent agents and bodyguards and, um, hangers on and, and, um, The people, the fans had come out of the hospital on crutches just to get a look at (laughs) Giada and Rachel and Bobby, you know, and and by the way, listen, those are all first, everyone knows who probably, I hope a lot of people listen to this, just know those people by their first names. They are one name stars. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, how the hell did this happen? How did these (laughs) chefs become Brad Pitt, you know? And by the way, interestingly, as an aside, this guy's festival was interesting because the public can't really just pay an amount of money and go to the Brad Pitt festival and get a look at Brad That's or true. you know and watch him the nice thing about what this guy was doing was he was basically putting these people on display um in their best light so that was the attraction why people were paying 2 300 dollars for tickets to some of these events just to eat hamburgers and look at Rachel Ray mhm anyway um so i said how the hell did this happen and so when i left the times uh, in late 09 i um I said, you know, I looked at the pile of ideas about things that I had never been able to get to because I was working at the Times, and the scrap of paper was on the top of the pile that fed, said, food stars, how did it all happen? Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I guess I'm the man who's going to find out how that all happened. Mm-hmm. Now, and, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, because of the access that I had, because I'd written about you know, this guy, these food festivals and some of these other food people, and in fact had even written an article about John Rosen who was – a William Morris agent who represented uh, Bobby, Rachel, and Giada, and and some others, Ming Tsai, and others along the line. Um, I had, I was known in that world, and so I could sort of leverage those connections, and um, and you know, I was qualified to write about it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. Now, I'm, I'm interested. Did you ever uh, watch the Food Network before you started to do research on it?
1: I I had watched it. I mean, I knew who... I remember when I first knew who Emeril was. (coughs) um, I guess just surfing the channels when I first got, you know, cable. And, you know, there was this guy who was clearly doing something different with a cooking show. And I'd say, I think I'm pretty normal in that it was Emeril and then it was probably Iron Chef Japan that first got me uh, watching the network. And I, I knew... Who Rachel Ray was, I I surfed past the channel. But you know, the, the thing is, people ask me about my book, like, "Well, are there recipes in it or something?" And it's like <laughs> I'm not a chef. I am a pretty good cook, um, and um, but I am a journalist, and I know I like to tell stories and I like to get inside worlds, and so that's that's my expertise. I, I can make a decent omelet, but I can you know interview people and collect facts and turn it uh, write a story better than I can make an omelet.
0: Right. I see. So the phenomenon, the historical phenomenon you wanted to explain or you wanted to investigate was how we went from a situation in which there was very little food on TV to the to the place at which there were actually TV food stars. And in fact, a network was built around them, right? Well, that
1: and not just that they had built a network, but that these stars were now some of the most, some of the biggest stars in American culture, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't just... Uh, I don't know what to compare it to, but it wasn't just that this, this was, you know, the latest crop of sitcoms. These were, these are household names.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of an analogy and I, I really,
1: well, rock, can't. rock, I, rock, you know, the whole thing where they say chefs are the new rock stars. I yeah. mean, it's one of those cliches at this point that is really, really true. The yeah, deeper you look the, into yeah. it. And if you think about rock music, it started as the blues, this great American, um, you know, art form that was not amplified. And then eventually, uh, the electric guitar was invented, and long-playing records and you know radio became more powerful, and more people could afford radios. There was you know cheaper transistor radios available, and you know eventually rock music became this dominant cultural force that reached into everything everywhere because mm-hmm. there was this art form, and then the technology to spread it, and then of course eager ears, post-war ears, eager to hear it, looking for something authentic. Mm-hmm. You know and i I, I kind of knew this intuitively and understood this about food but it wasn't until I really worked on the on the book that I uh, sort of more deeply realized the exact parallels because if you looked at there was this great American art form, which had really started you know, okay in the '70s, maybe, but really became into its own in the '80s. Um, you know, obviously, Chez Panisse, the great restaurant in Berkeley, and all of these chefs making first, you know, Wolfgang Puck and others, California cuisine, and then that spreading into a kind of a new American food movement, which was, you know, a new tradition from what had been considered fine dining in France and all the heavy sauces. This is an old story that if you want to read the United States of Arugula is a is a great book that tells that story uh-huh. but of how the American cuisine came around. This form, which had been uh, arisen really in the 80s, was kind of, you know, fumfering around until cable TV, which only had about 35 channels in – you know, the early 90s, if you remember. Right. It's hard to remember, but that's the situation. We used to have to go to the movies to see a lot. Of- <laughs> um, and we, everyone all of a sudden knew there was going to be this thing called the, the you know, the, everyone would say the coming 500-channel universe. Right. I think it was John Malone, who was a cable TV executive at that time, a um, uh, media executive, came up with that phrase. But th- there all of a sudden was going to be many more cable channels, Um, ready to distribute whatever – and and, and hungry for content, for subject. And so ultimately what happened was very similar to what happened with rock music. There was a a nascent art form and all of a sudden a new media available to spread it. And so what what happened was you took these chefs, um, people like Bobby Flay and Mario Batali who were just coming around in the early 90s and – Spread them eventually, I mean, very slowly and in a very amateur way, which I tell the stories in the book, which are pretty funny, but um, – and, you know, managed to, s- to spread them into every um, nook and cranny, uh, not just in America now, but just like rock music, uh, it's almost taking over the world. These. Yeah.
0: These people are on TV in South Africa and Asia and everywhere else. Right, right. a strange thing. So let's talk a little bit about the content itself. There was Food TV before the Food Network, and I'm sure many people will remember uh, Julia Child as one person. And what was the other fellow's name, the guy who drank all the time? Or maybe he didn't. What was his name? Graham's? Well, James, James Beard. Oh, James trying, Beard? You're, 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 well,
1: and, and James Beard had a TV show like in the um, you know early early days of TV. Um, uh-huh. And Deanie Lucas also had a show in the fifties. These uh-huh. were sort of the precursors of Julia okay. Child. and then yes, Julia Child, and then the Galloping Gourmet, right. great, yeah. Graham Kerr, Graham Kerr um, yeah. and also at that time, um, you know, there were other PBS stars in the eighties. Um, Jeff. Smith, known as the Frugal Gourmet, right? Jeff Smith. I watched him actually. Yeah, yeah, I did too. I love Jeff Jeff Smith, although unfortunately he um, fell on some hard times and was accused of being a child molester before he died. But nevertheless, um,
0: so there were uh, Martin and other people
1: like that, and and yes, and they were. But PBS was not particularly interested in doing much more than they were already doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean we should also say that those things were parodied in, I remember Saturday Night Live in the seventies. There were famous parodies is it seventies, 70s, late seventies 70s, of, of Julia Child. Yeah, well, it was the
1: famous Dan Aykroyd, yeah. which you can see in the movie uh, *Julie and Julia*. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was not something that was taken very seriously. It was thought to be this this silly little, you know, ghetto of public TV on weekend mornings. That right. was that that was the food television industry. A few right. a few people, PBS weekend mornings.
0: Right. So very different than it is today. So let me ask you this: How did the Food Network start?
1: ultimately there was that's a good, i mean you know I, I of course i spend hundreds of pages right. entertaining pages by the way um and just to by the way to mention julia you know julia actually was on the food network um as a sort of fairy godmother who would show up now and then and, and do some pretty funny things and i tell those stories in the book but the way that the network started basically there was a a, a guy in um Providence, Rhode Island. Who was working for the local cable company that was owned by the Providence Journal, the, the newspaper company, but they also owned um, a cable company called Colony. And Joe had was just a sort of inventive but strange fellow who was not particularly interested in food. All he was, all he really liked was he knew where all the best pizza places were in New England, um, and that was his extent of his food expertise. And Basically, um, one day an executive from um, Johnson and Wales, which is a had a trade school in Providence that had a cooking school, came in to pitch um, an idea to Joe about maybe the cable network the cable um, company would like to film a few cooking classes and put them on the public access channel Yeah, uh, you know that it would be a good way to sort of you know get the students motivated and maybe um, then this guy, Kenneth Levy, said to Joe Langan, and Joe Langan's the guy who worked at the cable company, and Kenneth Levy is the guy who worked for Johnson and Wales. Uh, Ken said, You know, my wife and I might like to watch a cooking show at night. You know, Joe thought this was a very um, crazy idea, and who would want to watch a cooking show at night? But um,
0: That would have been it, my question.
1: Yes, but ultimately, Joe, <clears throat> Joe's boss at the cable company had been saying we were looking for some new ideas, and so Joe just decided. Well, I guess I'll write this up as one of those. You know, maybe this would work as a channel, a Whole Food channel, um, and that's basically how it starts.
0: Mm-hmm. It didn't exactly take off, though, did it? No. Well,
1: I mean, what they what they did was they hired. They found a guy named Reese Schonfeld. Now, Reese had. Was famous in the cable industry for being a great entrepreneur, for knowing how to do stuff on no money whatsoever, and for having a horrible temper and screaming at his colleagues all the time and his employees. But Reese had been hired by Ted Turner as the first president of CNN. So Reese had shown, you know, CNN uh, had actually still exists, by the way. And so Reese had shown that he could get something started. So they hired Reese. And also, Reese was not a food guy either. In fact, Reese and his wife had had their kitchen removed at their Manhattan apartment. (laughs) (laughs) The only only food that they had there was – they had dog food because his wife was always rescuing dogs and they had a coffee maker.
0: So they ate out all the
1: time. Yes. uh, So those are basically the two people who started the Food Network, was a guy with no kitchen and somebody who liked pizza. So (laughs) – Um, about that, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so, so they had very little money. They had faced a lot of skepticism in trying to raise money from investors, and uh, a lot of people thought it was a very, very bad idea. Some people thought they didn't want to be in business with Reese because he was so tempestuous. But ultimately, what really helped its start was something that's now in the news again, uh, retransmission consent, which now is in the news because everyone wants broadcast channels now want to get paid by cable providers for the right to carry the right to, for, the, for them to carry the – it's so hard to explain but basically if you're CBS you are now saying to Time Warner you have to pay us to put us on the air right and this is why you get boycott you know all of a sudden CBS was off the air for a while and it's it's getting very complicated and expensive and everybody's cable bill is too expensive but at that time Um, Retransmission consent was not a cash deal. The cable providers were not thought to have enough money to pay for carriage. So instead what they did was they said, okay, if you're CBS, we're not going to pay you, but we will instead give you another channel slot on the dial that you can do with as you please. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, to make a long story short on that, the Food Network, which was then called, by the way, at its launch, Television Food Network, TVFN, Mm -hmm. managed to make deals with people who owned local channels for the right to use that second channel slot and get on the air.
0: So, they had all this extra bandwidth, basically, and they had no content. So, the Food Network went and said, we'll we'll give you something to put on. That's a good way of boiling it down. Yeah, right. So, uh, but... Even once uh, they started listening, or did I bore them all? No, me? no. Yeah, I got it. So they have the bandwidth now, but who do they get to be on the show? I mean, it's not like there is a. Are there there is it like a? Are there people training TV chefs? That okay, we get these guys.
1: There were very. There was really no television, um, food. You know, food television industry. Yeah, so who they get? I mean, who, well, originally, you know, who they wanted originally, who we identified as key was Julia Child. So, they Julia had a contract with Good Morning America um that didn't allow her to cook on any other channel. So, um she was eventually brought into the network as somebody who would come on their daily news show, which they had a daily food news program. Right. Um called originally uh, uh Food News and Views, and Julia would come on once in a while as um a commentator, but other than her, they basically had a cast around for um, you know, people who might Uh, be able to cook on television and have um, winning personalities. And one of the first people that was recommended to Reese um, through a relationship he had was Emeril Lagasse. Now, Emeril was known for um, his restaurants for being a young up-and-coming chef in New Orleans who had kind of popularized uh, Cajun cooking, you know, along with, some others down there, obviously, Paul Prudhomme and others. But Emeril was this young, up-and-coming chef who had made a few guest appearances on a cooking show that was on the Nashville Network. And so the producers of those recommended him. Um, and even though he was a uh, very talented chef, Reese had this idea for a, a show called How to Boil Water.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, Reese yeah. had his own ways, and Reese was friends friend of the um, magazine editor who had said, You know what, the men of America need is a show that teaches them to cook the basics, because uh, this friend of Reese's had just gotten divorced right. and literally couldn't even boil water. Right. So, on Emeril Lagasse's first show, what he taught America was how to actually, literally, <laughs> put water in a pot and turn on the heat.
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
1: he then moved on to such subtleties as making a grilled cheese sandwich.
0: Right. So, they have this extra bandwidth. And now they have a couple of people who they can be. I mean, did they did they have enough shows or did they just run them over and over, or how did and it the work? Sh- they had they had
1: four hours of programming. <laughs> and well, interestingly, and you know and the stars were people like David Rosengarten and um and, and then they had Donna Hanover who was married to Mayor Giuliani at the time, That's and good. she was the co host of the news show. Yeah. Um and there were some other Debbie Fields who um best known as Mrs. Fields. Cookies? Yes, wow. she was. She hosted a dessert show, uh-huh. um, and was uh, became one of the. Actually, she was far better known at first than Emerald because um, well, viewers were amazed at how long her nails were. That yeah. she and, and she kept puncturing through her pie crusts and getting stuff caught in her nails. It wasn't very pleasant.
0: But what was your question? My question was: Is that uh, did they have any programming? I mean, and they really didn't. They had four no, hours it of programming. Also, right? also went went back and bought. Um,
1: some old uh, Julia Child episodes. He bought old uh, Galloping Gourmet episodes and even old James Beard um, to fill out the the programming day.
0: Mm-hmm. So they're running things over and over again. So let's move on then uh, at some, this is a pretty small scale operation at this point, right? Yeah, there are, they were trying to basically
1: the budget for each cooking show was about $1,500. <laughs> they were filming um, originally in, they rented a little – tiny little studio that didn't even have a kitchen um, uh, on the far west side of Manhattan, which at that time was crawling with transvestite hookers and, um, and <clears throat> traffic from the um, Holland Tunnel. Right. Um, and eventually, after a few months, they, they moved to a better studio and um, – uh, but still, was, we're producing cooking shows uh, on a ridiculously tight budget, yes. Right.
0: And was it Reese who had – I remember from reading the book, was he, was he the one who had the no-repeat rule? Yeah, Reese, because he was a newsman, <laughs> insisted that
1: this every show needed to be fresh. He didn't want to run any repeats. Now he would run repeats during the day, so they were doing this four hour block, and um, you know, repeating that um, you know however many four times yeah. six is twenty four six times, and then it became six hours, and they repeated four times. But um, he did not want shows to repeat day to day. He thought that this was this was basically CNN with stoves. And (laughs) shows. So these guys were taping five shows, you know, in one day. They were uh, recording, and they would, you know, record like sixty episodes, um, you know, in the course of uh, ten or twelve days. And and yeah, so there was there were thousands and thousands of shows made that were not a very high quality,
0: and they had to do everything in one take. Right? Yeah, right? nearly no, one take. No,
1: yeah. no stopping rule. No, stop, was, no stopping you're rule. You're taking a half-hour show. Yeah. <laughs> you, you tape that thing in half an hour, and it, doesn't, it didn't matter if fire broke out or if you <laughs> cut yourself. And, we're, and then, in fact, Mario Batali's first appearance um, on the network, he um, was demonstrating how to make a, um, a marinara sauce, and he – Grating a carrot, he grated part of his finger into the mix. He looked up, he expected them to say cut. And, and actually, Reese's wife was producing the show, Pat, and um, she just looked at him stone faced, and he just had to keep going. That was the, the rule, no stopping. Mm-hmm. So he basically wrapped his hand uh, in a towel and leaned on it while he kept cooking with <laughs> one hand. And then when they came back from commercial, he had the hand in the tomatoes, which he was crushing. So he figured red on
0: red. Nobody yeah, would. Right. Ouch. So this kind of thing went on. Yeah, right. So, so then again, to kind of jump forward a little bit, this is a New York based operation with sort of New Yorkers running it, right?
1: But eventually, it it
0: moves. Well, it moved. It was.
1: It was. Oh, it's still in New York, but the, um, you know, Bobby Flay said, uh, you know, back in the early days, the only requirement to be on the Food Network was that you were able to get there by subway. <laughs> but it is important to note, you know, they did eventually, you know, expand, but um it, it expand the the chefs that they were flying in to New York. They got um, Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger who were young, good-looking um, female chefs from LA and they were that they became the two hot tamales and they were important right, yeah. stars. Um, but th- the fact that there was this um this sort of new American food movement that had taken over a bit in downtown New York created this kind of roster of talent that the network could tap into for you know Bobby Flay and um, Mario came from there and as well as the chefs who could try out on a show they had called Chef de Jour mm-hmm. and you know what's, what's interesting maybe about all this is that it was it was so small time that it was allowed it allowed these personalities to cut kind of develop and um, you know at this time there were probably only six seven eight million households that could even get the network and right. they most of them thought this thing was so cheap and bad that they didn't even watch the ratings were very low and the network was struggling to survive for years um, just barely um, you know not even breaking even losing just losing money but not losing so much that the investors wanted to totally give up on it
0: hmm hmm uh, so, it sounds like
1: you want to move forward.
0: Well, well, what I wanted to talk about was the, the moment at which uh, – so Projo, this, these people in Providence still own the thing, right? Yeah. Right. So, But eventually some other folks buy it and they're not New Yorkers at all. Oh, right. That's what you yeah. – uh, what happened was
1: the you – know, Projo had investors but but through a, a series of, of business deals, um, Scripps, uh, which was a newspaper company in – um, Cincinnati, although they, with a television arm in Knoxville, Tennessee, Knoxville, they, Tennessee they eventually yeah. became the majority owner um, interestingly, the Chicago Tribune company has owned thirty percent of the network from the word "go" and still does wow. it's just they just have no they don 't run the thing they just collect, at mm-hmm. this point collect profits but but what happened with Knoxville was that yes, this whole new um, sort of um there became a culture clash between these more genteel um conservative corporate folk uh who were who basically now owned the network and controlled it out of knoxville um and the new yorkers and they originally thought they were going to move the network to knoxville uh, but when they sent the food people from new york there they realized you couldn't get fresh fish you couldn't get uh Fresh vegetables. There was no bok choy. There was no Chinatown, and it was going to be very difficult to run a food network out of this place, which was basically a food desert. Mm-hmm. And um, and at that time, Food Network was still a company that was producing most of its own content. It wasn't like they were just going out and finding, which is now the model for television. Most networks, you just have producers who come and pitch you shows, and you know you just decide who you show you want to buy. Mm-hmm network was making its own content and so had literally had kitchens at its center um, right next to the you know the, the offices of the executives um, so there was actually steam and smoke and smells of cooking in the office
0: right so how did the people in um, in Knoxville that is scripts what did they think about the New York operation and, and I guess what did the people in the New York operation think about uh, the, the, <laughs> the folks in Knoxville the, um, they're, the they're, I've been to both places they're very dissimilar.
1: Well, yeah, the people people in Knoxville thought the people in New York were insane. They thought they were a bunch of, you know, whining, crazy, um, you know, persnickety people who, um, you know, were were nothing but impossible to manage. And the people in in, uh, New York thought the people from Knoxville were, you know, just going to ruin everything. In fact, right after Scripps bought um, – Food Network, they had a corporate retreat, a retreat for Food Network, at this place called Blackberry Farms in <laughs> uh, in uh, Tennessee. And so this was this attempt to meld these, you know, crazy New Yorkers with these more genteel um, Knoxvillians. Yeah, this is
0: a great part of the book, by the way, for those who are going to read it.
1: Yeah. And, and so origi- immediately, you know, they, the New Yorkers arrive in their high heels at the, at the farm and <laughs> You know, they're greeted by like corporate executives um, in like overalls, and they're told that they're going to go have a sing along by a campfire, and so the um, the the some guy from Knoxville from the Scripps picks up a guitar and starts playing "Rocky Top, Tennessee," which is about you know the the virtues of living without a telephone and the Smoky Mountains, and. The New Yorkers are like looking at each other, like, "Is this invasion of the body snatchers? What's happening here?" And somebody whispers to another, "Is this what they call a hootin' Annie?" <laughs> and then the New Yorkers pick up the guitar and they play uh, "Billy Joel, Piano Man," and the and the are looking at each other, saying, "Making love to his tonic and gin? Hoop, how? What?"
0: So, but, but in, in you know, as it turns out, that I, th- I think and maybe I'm reading something into your book. Scripps was actually very good for the Food Network.
1: Well, you know, they were certainly good in that they rationalized the operation, they put money into it, and they brought more professional um, management. And you know, um, and they also knew how to get more cable distribution. And how to uh, ultimately um, create a better business model where the network could start uh, collecting subscriber fees from uh, companies, and eventually put you know um, set set, got the network in a position where it could then start to make money. And that then when opportunity came around um, after nine eleven, especially they were in a great position to start to make money. Now, so financially, yes. Um, it was a great thing. Now, creatively, I mean, look, it, this is – Scripps has owned the network for most of its life. So if you love Food Network, you you basically do love what Scripps did.
0: And, and a lot of people love the Food Network. Yes. So, you know, you give the people their due. I mean, Yes, and
1: I'm giving them their due in the book. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not critical – I'm not ripping scripts apart. I'm just saying, what's interesting is if you look at some of the most important and groundbreaking shows that have ever been on Food Network, like Iron Chef, uh, the original one from Japan, and mm-hmm. Good Eats from Alton Brown. Those shows were actually had come to the network and were sort of germinating before scripts came in. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the questions, or that I examine in the book, is whether you know. There was a trade-off of this, um, you know, corporate um, clarity of operation um, that squeezed out some of the most interesting uh, food programming, and whether there maybe was another road that might have been taken.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, a good good way to talk about that is to talk about, if I recall his name correctly, Matt Stillman and the way Iron Chef came to the Food Network. Is that a good way to talk about it? I want people to have to read about Matt. I'm not going to. Talk oh, come about on! That. It's a really good story, though. You know what I will
1: talk about though is that it, what happened after nine with nine eleven was important. Oh, because, you're not going to talk about Matt Stillman? That's what bothers me. <laughs> go ahead. I just I think it needs to be. I think some things need to not be spoiled. All right, it's a hell of a good story, though. It is. So read the book. It's all, right, all fine, if you okay. buy on Amazon right now. It's like sixteen dollars <laughs> 16 Okay. All right. The Kindle. It's like twelve. Go ahead. All right.
0: All um, right. So go ahead.
1: Amazon is a major internet book retailer.
0: <laughs> Thanks very much. I knew I, I've, heard sure. I've heard of them. I've heard of them. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're not going to tell us about Iron Chef and you're not going to tell us about Matt Stillman. What are there's you There's some
1: really about? funny stories about the Iron Chefs. Yeah. Okay. Great.
0: So eventually, see, the reason I ask about Iron <laughs> Chef is, is, as you point out in the book, I think, mo- I don't know about most people, but most people my age or many people, or I don't exactly know how to quantify it, were introduced to the Food Network through Iron Chef. That's the way I found out about. That's true. It. No, that's it's true. I, you know, I watched the Japanese version of Iron Chef as it was. I, if I recall correctly, it was it was a uh, on the Food Network. And and then they basically copied the format and there was an English version, right?
1: English, well, originally English. Iron Chef was shown in Japanese on um, Japanese language television in, in the U.S. I mean, right. first it was a show in Japan, obviously. But and then, all
0: the hit yeah. people were watching it. You know, everybody yeah. who lives in Brooklyn was watching you know, the Japanese Iron Chef. Okay. And, and, then, and and then Food Network did ac-
1: acquire the rights through um, some interesting stories, which you'll see. but. The the thing that the thing so people did start to watch Food Network because Food Network was showing a dubbed version of Iron Chef and that started getting them tons of attention and tons of press. Um, yeah, people were having you know drinking as con- you say hipsters adopted it. it was, oh yeah, definitely. Would drink yeah. you would um, there was drinking contests that came around because you would have a drink every time a chef said I think he's going to steam that <laughs> or you know one of the commentators said he's going to steam that.
0: I remember it was fun. It
1: was a fun show to watch. It, it, it was fun, and then um, the thing that really put it over the top was when uh, the Japanese decided to challenge Bobby Flay um, in a, in a uh, at Webster Hall in New York City. So they flew in the entire. and This was the Japanese Iron Chef. This was not right. Iron Chef America, and so they it was it was Iron Chef Morimoto against uh, Bobby Flay at Webster Hall, and this became actually an international. Uh, incident when Bobby after having gone through hell you know there was actually electric current running um through the water at his feet during this thing and um he cut himself badly on, on a blade of a food processor but he kept working and so Bobby was so thrilled that he had finished not that he had won because the judging was still to come but after the hour of competition Bobby was so thrilled that he jumped up on the cutting board and Raised his arms. If you remember, people used to raise their arms and go, "Raise the roof, yo!" Mm-hmm. Um, and Bobby did that. And then Morimoto was interviewed um, by the onset reporter, and he said, "Bobby's no chef." You know, he said it in <laughs> Japanese. Basically, and he said that Bobby was disrespecting the, the cutting board, which is held sacred in Japan. Right. So this became, you know, news across America, across the world. It was an international cutting board incident, which nobody had even known there was such uh, etiquette before. And that really put Food Network on the map.
0: So it it was really at that time that stars appeared on the Food Network, people that, uh, you know, as you put it in the beginning of the interview, sort of like the Brad Pitt's of food. Um, I I guess Bobby Flay is is one of them, but by this time there are a lot of them, and they – there's a sort of switch in the network, isn't there, between, you know, it used to be run by some corporate types who hired people that didn't know what they're doing, and then that sort of balance of power shifts to these stars, like Emerald. What also happened, and this is the nine eleven
1: kind of shift, is that up until around 2000 when the Webster Hall thing happened, um, most of the people who you would see on the air on the network were chefs. They had come through cooking school, and they knew... Um, you know, they knew what a, a Brunoise was, mm-hmm. and um, I don't even know what a Brunoise is. Not really but, either. I have no idea. But um, I think it's a way of chopping. Okay. But um, they, um, w- what happened after nine eleven was that the network decided that they needed cooking stars who people could identify with more. They wanted more the the neighbor giving them the friendly tip about, you know, how to make fried chicken or how to get a meal on the table quickly. And the, the, the real um, breakthrough person was Rachel Ray. Rachel Ray. Can you at least
0: tell us the story of Rachel Ray or do we have to read the book for that one?
1: Well, I mean, Rachel was – uh, and there's many ways to tell the story, but ba- basically, Rachel came from a family that was a restaurant family. They they operated restaurants when she was a girl, and there was not a lot of money. And there was, you know, as as with a lot of these people who became stars on the network, interestingly, there was a very there was a sort of a bad divorce, and there was a lot of sort of conflict within the family. And it, it almost, in some of these people, seems to have created this. Um, you know desperate desire to to put something beautiful on the table that would solve you know the all the conflict uh, within the family and and then they communicate that the beauty of what that could do um, uh, through the television but um
0: anyway rachel well the way you the way you describe rachel in the in the book i mean she was discovered literally discovered and if again I don't want to uh, put um, words in your mouth or words on the paper but she was more or less the perfect um exemplar of what yes well the, 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 the food is- network was built for
1: at that point, yeah, at the, that the, point what it yeah. had come to so they started realizing even before 911 that they wanted to get away from chefs and they wanted people who were better on television um, it, it was more important that somebody <clears throat> be able to um, you know connect with the viewers so um Rachel, I mean, it's such a long story, but um, Rachel had been doing local um, three-minute cooking demos on the local news uh, in upstate New York. And she had eventually convinced somebody to let her write a cookbook, which was based on these little segments she was doing, and what she called the cookbook was 30-minute meals. And um, she had been doing these things for so long that she had gotten pretty good at it. She's also a natural. So when she was, there was an interview happening with her um, on the radio about her new cookbook and this guy named Lou Eckes who had, tra- he had trained a lot of chefs um, how to um, perform on television for the cameras. So he actually heard this radio segment and he was so amazed that this woman was, charming, was telling her own story, but was giving great cooking tips and was entertaining, and it was all coming through on the radio, a cooking segment, that he immediately called somebody at Food Network uh, an executives there and said, you have to find out about this woman, Rachel Ray. Mm-hmm. She's done, She just did the perfect interview. Um, I couldn't teach it any better. Simultaneously, um, Al Roker, the weatherman from the Today Show, had a house upstate and he knew about He had seen Rachel's segments and thought she was kind of bubbly and wanted to put her on the Today Show at some point. And it was only when there was a horrible blizzard uh, in New York City and they couldn't fly in any guests that they invited her on because she could actually drive from upstate. And so at the same time that Bob Tushman, the executive at Food Network, who received the call about Rachel, called the cookbook publisher to find out about her. Al Roker had called, and so Bob was able to see Rachel on the Today Show, and then when she was in New York, she came into a meeting at Food Network, and mm-hmm. she, she told them she thought she was beer from a bottle, and they were champagne, and she would never fit in, and she didn't understand why they were calling her, but they were at that point interested in changing over.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, she was sort of beer from a bottle, and I'm wondering, you know, when she came on, she was a – I don't know if she was an instant hit, but she – in a way became the new face of the, the well, Food network now, her show debuted her show debuted
1: in November two thousand one mm-hmm. so she was the perfect person for that moment because after nine eleven um, people were hungry for simple things for connection with family, everyone was talking about cocooning people were uh, who had been dating for years all of a sudden decided to get married. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone was, was interested in, in, in the simple things all of a sudden and in Mm -hmm. in connection.
0: But what, what did the serious, I'm putting serious in quotes. I'm sure there are very serious, the serious chefs on the program. What they think about her?
1: Yeah. I mean, Emeril and others went to the executives and said, I don't want her on the air. She's not a chef. She doesn't know what she's doing. Mm -hmm. There was a ton of opposition to her. Because this was supposed to be this, you know, serious kind of cooking school. And it had come, you know, if you go back to the origins, it had come out of Johnson and Wales and this, you know, serious chefs. Emerald was a serious chef. Bobby was a serious chef. Um, but then all of a sudden there was this new kind of, you know, person who was just a home, uh, looked like a mom. Right, right. And right. they weren't interested. There's a lot of opposition.
0: Right. But the people who came after her, I mean, she kind of. Blazed a trail for people well, like that. I mean, Jamie Oliver, is he a chef? I, I think he is, is he? I yes, Jamie. He James is is a chef? Well, I'm trying chef. to think of some that aren't. I can't really remember, but... Well, what happened was... Tyler, he worked in... Once, well, Tyler was also a
1: chef. Okay, all right, go ahead. <laughs> what, what, what happened with Rachel was once, um, you know, her show came on after 9-11, people were so enamored of her and she was such a natural on TV and she was saying look in 30 you don't need to go to culinary school in 30 minutes or less anybody can put a, a good tasting meal on the table this was the message that America wanted to hear so they started looking around for more people who weren't chefs and that's where you start to get sort of the Mount Rushmore of this you know the in the kitchen block of mm-hmm. personalities on Food Network Paula Deen Giada De Laurentiis right Ina Garden, who's the barefoot Contessa and those stars who were really propelled the network into the next mm-hmm. level.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in this battle between the chefs and the, I don't want to call them non-chefs, the chefs and the cooks, what do we say? The cooks win. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, uh, the,
1: To some extent, those became – and even those who were chefs needed to adapt. They needed to try to become more personalities. It wasn't just enough anymore to be able – like Sarah Moulton was the classic example of this. Sarah was a uh, a, a well-trained chef who had, yes, worked uh, for Good Morning America and Gourmet Magazine and Julia Child, so she knew media, but Sarah's show, Cooking Live, and then another one called Sarah's Secrets, was um, really about instruction. People would call in, and they would say, you know, tell me the proper way to boil an egg. And (laughs) Sarah was a cooking teacher and saw herself as a cooking teacher, and that Mm -hmm. this network's mission was to teach cooking, Um. You know which was which is a fine and art form, but um, ultimately it was it was and if if even look at G, what Giotta was was the new uh, version of Mario Mario Batali right. had this great show which was very erudite and and would tell you about all the regions of Italy and how to make pasta from scratch and it was very complicated and intellectual. Now Giada came on and, and you know tells you how to make Italian food in 45 minutes without ever, you know, having
0: to button up your shirt all the way. Right. She's attractive. She's a
1: very good looking
0: young woman. Yeah, She is a good looking young woman. That doesn't hurt. I think, um, that's television. That's television. (laughs) That's exactly right. That is television. That's good. So we've, we've, uh, I really want to get to one character. I want to spend some time. I don't know if you'll talk about him or not, (laughs) <laughs> but since you blew me on. off on Matt Stillman, okay. um, but it, it's my favorite character in the whole book, and it's not Joe. Joe's great, but uh, it's actually Bobby Flay.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: he's the To me, he's the most fascinating character because he comes across as a survivor and somebody who understands the network at almost every moment, having been with it a very long time. Now, he has kind of a bad rep. Uh, You read things about him, and they're they're not terribly polite. But again, and I this is just my interpretation of your book. In in your book, he he comes off very well. He 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 comes off as somebody who is uh, sort of sensible. Is the word I, I want I want to say? He's sensible. He's realistic. He's willing to do the work that's necessary to make sure the network survives and that his career survives. Can you talk a little bit about him?
1: Well, if you ask Bobby what college he went to, he'll say UCLA, and not, mm-hmm. not the University of California, Los Angeles. It's the University of the Corner of Lexington Avenue. <laughs> now, Bobby is just a sharp street kid who knows how and a gambler who shrewdly sizes up the odds in any situation, gathers information, and then makes his move. You know, in some ways, he's really smart, but he's very, in some ways, unsophisticated. Which is to his credit. Bobby doesn't think too much; he thinks just enough. Mm -hmm. I've really, since writing the book, started to think. You know, what would Bobby Flay do? (laughs) He seems to, you know, as a kid, his obsessions. You know, he played blackjack on the stoop with his friends. He would cut school and go to play uh, the horses. At the track. Um, he was good at basketball. And those are still mostly his interests. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's still how he basically operates. He, he studies the network. He studies who's in power. He never seems to make a false move. He just slowly – he decides what he's going to do and then he just slowly executes a plan. Mm-hmm. And he has managed he is the chameleon who has survived all yeah. these years every everybody else even emerald's gone
0: yeah well that, yeah. that's the interesting thing about him is that he keeps popping up in every chapter you're like I thought you know because everybody goes yep. nobody survives in this book except Bobby Flay as far yeah. as I can tell
1: he's, he's incredible <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I, you know I, I set out to you know write the story of Bobby Flay and there's a lot of other stories in there but yes he just keeps coming back because he he just, You know, if you look at um, a real turning point for him was around this time when all of the uh, personalities were becoming ascendant. And Bobby, you know, is is a classically trained chef with successful restaurants, but he realized he needed something more. He couldn't just do another show about grilling, which was his thing, you know. Um, And he sat down and he thought, well, what's a really successful show on cable? And at that time, Oh man, I'm forgetting now. There was a show on MTV, um, Punked.
0: Yeah, Punked, right? Punked
1: was a really successful show. And he just sort of broke down the elements of Punked and then he rebuilt it as this show called Throwdown.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, which Where Bobby would travel around and compete against local, you know, the guy that had the best barbecue ribs in their town would compete against Bobby. And Bobby just, you know, it just, that kind of thing goes on again and again and again. Yeah. over the years. He just susses out the situation and shrewdly figures out how to play it. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. You could tell the whole network just by telling his story. I mean, you could tell the story of the whole network by t- kind of telling his story because he's there at every moment. It's interesting. I really, you know, I'd never really heard of the guy before I read your book, so you do a nice job of portraying him um, because it is really true that, if you know, this is a little bit like, it's not like a Shakespeare tragedy. Everybody doesn't die in the end. They die all along the way. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's a sort of a slow bleed. No, as I say, everybody eventually becomes uh, crocodile food. Yeah, they do all become crocodile They crocodiles. get thrown into the moat. Yeah, let me ask you a couple of just, uh, let me throw out a couple of questions. Number one, uh, does anybody actually make the recipes that they see on the food network? Oh, yes. Do they really? Have you? Oh, yeah, I have. <laughs> and
1: this is even before I wrote the book. I mean, look, people, what, what, what happened was Food Network. I mean, it's actually there's also the internet part of this story, which is that Food Network got an internet site up with recipes before almost anybody else did. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they had their original URL was foodtv.com, and now you can go, they still own that one, and Food Network and Cooking Channel, which is their spinoff network. But, um, you know, when you want to cook something, going to the internet and searching for it is a great way to do it. And food network now has this amazing catalog of recipes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and what happens is because of, you know, the new power, the new thing, well, not that new anymore, but the, the power of ratings, you know, stars, I mean, you know, Five star, four star, three star. You can look and see what the good recipes are. There's there's millions of reviews of these recipes, perfections of it. It's it's um, actually I have to say it's a pretty legit place to get recipes.
0: So would you say the Food Network has improved the uh, sort of um, uh, culinary level of the United States? That is, do we eat better now thanks to the Food Network? We eat better and worse. Um,
1: You know, it it has expanded all kinds of. You know, just as rock music has good good some good stuff and some bad stuff. That's the same thing with uh, you know food TV. It, mm-hmm. There's good stuff and there's bad stuff out there, but w- what it what it ultimately did was it took these this you know information and this news of you know the food revolution and 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 new things you could do with food from these small pockets in urban centers and spread it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And if you look at you know now there's even I think a Food Network kiosk at um, Lambeau Field hmm. and you know there you can get something that's more interesting than you used to be able to get at a stadium it's not just a crappy hot dog you know mm-hmm. it's a brisket sandwich with coleslaw and you know some kind of delicious side I'm for that yes the 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 ability to get interesting food more places than you used to be able to um can almost certainly be directly traced to to the food network. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that they're teaching everybody how to eat steamed vegetables? No. No.
0: No. Yeah. So uh, here's another question. You're going to get this a million times as you talk about the book. Paula Deen. That's the question. <laughs> I don't know. Classic. It's just like a
1: sports reporter.
0: Can yeah. you talk about… Yeah. yeah. No, Paula, Paula Dean. I'm I not even going to say can you talk listen, about Just Paula okay. Dean?
1: Well, you know… What's interesting is in my book, I had Paula's, you know, the the way she came to be, and you know, as I talked about earlier, well, the, she came about because they were looking for new kinds of personalities after nine eleven, and there was actually a lot of opposition at the network to Paula because they didn't think she was smart enough for the for the viewership. There was a real bias against the South, um, and against those kinds of you know recipes. Sure. Fried chicken, lemon chest pie, all these kinds of things. and But through a lot of chutzpah, this agent of hers got her on the air. And what I had already chronicled before the whole N-word controversy, if you will, um, flared up, was the way that she was already um, causing um, unhappiness within the network. And the, the fact that they didn't have a good relationship with her. Um, this thing she had done by taking... Um, $6 million to endorse a diabetes drug right. after she had basically been telling everybody to eat more sugar and more butter yeah. for years, um, you know, which struck so many people as hypocritical and greedy, struck the people, of the network the same way. So, um, she was already in some jeopardy, uh, as far as, and, you know, the network also, as you say, you know, everybody has their day and, um, they, uh, They'll sometimes you viewers won't always know when somebody's show is no longer in production because they keep rerunning it. Right. Um, so they could have easily let Paula go quietly and just kept rerunning Paula's best dishes um, for years. But once this, I mean, I don't even know. You know, you asked me a general question, just Paula Dean, and so I just, you know,
0: let's go ahead, yeah,
1: my version of it. But basically, um, once this deposition, you know, there was a lawsuit against Paula. By, and and her brother and, and her company by some ex employees who claimed racial and sexual discrimination, mm-hmm. and in a deposition that Paula gave, she admitted that she had used the N word, and that she said some other things about plantations and slaves that struck people as racist. Now I interviewed Paula many times, and you know she never. Spoke about that to me. But I will say that she is a great person to interview because she's unguarded. She is always herself. Um, and she just tells it as she sees it. And as a reporter, that's a great thing. And I think fans really connected to her because of that unguarded nature. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw on the screen basically who she was. Um, however, once she started, you know, letting herself just run rampant on these other topics that weren't just about butter. Um, it, you know it probably would have been a better idea for her team to have um, you know tried to settle that lawsuit uh, before it became public mm-hmm. now she also had built up you know huge endorsement deals um, she was making 20 thirty million dollars a year in endorsement deals and so anyway to, to cut forward, everybody probably knows that uh, she lost all those endorsement deals. She, her contract was terminated by the Food Network, um, and uh, you know her empire is basically crumbling. the The question I then get is, is she ever going to be back? And the answer I give is, she will never be back on the Food Network because this little network that started from nothing and which was barely making money is now worth about ten billion dollars, mm-hmm. and companies that are worth ten billion dollars and have and are looking to get, by the way, distribution in Africa and Asia and all over the world, cannot afford to be associated with somebody in any way who, even if it, even if she's not really racist, whatever that means, who may be racist or who seems racist, mm-hmm. you can't be associated with her. It's a big business. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe she'll ever be back on the Food Network. Do I think she still has a, a sort of career, maybe on television, maybe as a food personality, appearing at food festivals? Yes. I don't think we've heard Past, uh, for better or worse, for, um, from Paula Deen. Mm-hmm.
0: So you talk to a lot of people from the Food Network, past and present. Uh, and this may be a ridiculous question, but as a cohort, are they nice people? Are they good people? Do they? Are, did, did you have a kind of favorable impression of? Well, I'd say there's two kinds of people
1: there. There's the food people and then the TV people.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> and Be careful. People, people who
1: get in the food business, who get in the restaurant business are generally generous, um, warm, welcoming people who get into the hospitality business because they're hospitable. They like to have a good time. They They want you to have a good time. They want to feed you something delicious. Um, they want to connect with you, have a great conversation. They are wonderful people. And, you know, most of the talent, most of the talent, not all, falls into that category. Now, the TV people are basically what TV people are across most networks. They want to try to do the best they can, but they're also paranoid, um, subject to, you know, the, 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 the daily rigors of getting the ratings from the night before, um, they're constantly worried that somebody younger is about to take their job. Um, and they make some decisions based on paranoia and, you know, fear. That can sometimes not make them the most enjoyable people to hang around.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So uh, now the book is out. Uh, I don't know if it's official. When is its official publication date? October first, two thousand thirteen. October first, two thousand thirteen. I have a copy of it right here, though. And presumably, some people that you interviewed and talked to have seen the book. Yes. How? What have they said to you since they? Can- <laughs> the most a lot of people say fascinating.
1: You know, and a lot of people <laughs> worked at the network. You know, they don't. It, most people who work at the network now do not even know who started their network. They don't, it's yeah. not like they're not historians or academics. They're, they're just trying to get a new show on the air. That's going to, you know, get ratings and sell commercials, sell toothpaste. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think some of them are fascinated to learn where, how this all started in such a, a small way. Other, you know, others are just giving me the silent treatment. I mm-hmm. think, as I said, the, Although the network gave me great access and I interviewed every president of the network, the current executives, the people from Scripps, um, they have since really um, are scared of what's in there. And I think um, – so I'm not hearing from
0: a lot of them. Maybe and it's I'm- because they're paranoid and they think something bad is in it. Yes. But they haven't read it yet.
1: And it's not just that. It's also <laughs> that –
0: no, I think some of them haven't read it, or
1: you know, and unfortunately, I think some of them read the the galley, which um, isn't as good as the final version sure. because I fixed a lot of little mistakes. But sure. um, I think the real issue is that if they're afraid that I know the truth or that I expose something, that or a fear that they have, which is that. The moment of the food TV celebrity in America is probably not at its height. It probably is off its height and it's probably on a long slide down and they are having trouble at the network figuring out. people. They Everybody who has wanted to figure out how to boil an egg properly or whatever, has there's plenty of shows already about that. They don't necessarily want to watch cooking shows anymore but – and people complain that the Food Network is nothing but competition shows, and but that's what people seem to want to watch. At least it's what they have. They are desperately struggling to figure out what's next there,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: which is what all TV always does, but especially this. They were founded on cooking shows and, and that kind of programming, and that kind of programming is probably not working anymore. Now, as I said, they're still making money internationally, but – I think they're so scared of where they are and of the fact that they don't actually know anything anymore that something like my book is just another unknown unknown. Or maybe it's a known unknown, but it just makes them scared and they would just wish it would go away.
0: Well, I mean, given the fact that you've conducted really a lot of research on it, many hundreds of interviews and for thousands of hours and probably know more about the Food Network than Anyone alive, and pro- certainly <laughs> no, they should probably ask you about what yes. they should do next. <laughs> well, since they you know it, the story. A, if yeah. They, yeah,
1: and if they want to pay me as a consultant, yeah, um, I'm happy probably. to do it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, right. you know, uh, listen, all I got to do is pick up the phone. I'll give them my opinion.
0: I don't know. Yes. I've read the book, and I don't, there's nothing, you know, I, I, I didn't find anything terribly salacious. I didn't find anything salacious in it. It sounds like, you know, I'm a professionally trained historian myself, and I, you know, it reads like a, a good history with a lot of excellent stories. There's no no dirt dishing in it. There's no. Nobody- there's a little. There's
1: a well, little. okay. Don't okay. Be, there's, to know, be sure,
0: there's some really spicy stories, more spicy stories than you would get in sort of your average book about yeah. medieval Russian history. <laughs> but having said that, you know, this ain't Kitty Kelly. No. You're a reporter. Yes, right? it's, yeah. it's, it's <laughs>
1: real journalism. And, and, you know, what, I'm, what I've what i heard from my people who tell me what the people, at the executives are saying is that, you know, they wish that they could rip it apart and say it's not true. Mm hmm. You know, but they're all like, oh, actually, this is quite accurate to what happened.
0: There's a lot of things in there they should be very proud of, too. I I agree. It's a a great great story.
1: It's a great story. It's a great American American rags to riches business story about starting from nowhere and building a multi billion dollar empire. They should all be proud of what they've done. And I think that's just going to tell.
0: Joe in Providence and then. Boom. You have this thing. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's been great talking to you. It's a fantastic book. We've been talking with Alan Salkin about his new tome from scratch inside the food network, big personalities, high drama, the extraordinary behind the scenes story. So uh, Alan, we have a kind of traditional final question on the new books network. And that is, what are you working on now? What is your next project? If you have one? First of all,
1: go to, um, Alan Salkin for more uh, little tidbits. Okay. Um, but, um, I am working on – I, although publicizing the book, I promised myself I would spend at least an hour a day doing something else, which I do not manage to do every day. But mm-hmm. it is going to be probably the book I've been working on for a while, which is about um, uh, this American writer who died in India and my search for her missing final book.
0: Mm. That sounds cool. Sounds mysterious.
1: It's it's a, a, it's
0: a, it sounds like a huge departure from the Food Network.
1: It's a, uh, yes and no. I mean, yes. But it's it's a true story and it's a it's a fascinating story. And um, I think that once people fall in love with my this book, the Food Network book, they will want to read this other so. one too.
0: I hope so. I hope so. Well, um, Alan, let me say thank you for being on the show. First My of all, pleasure, Marshall absolutely. And uh, let me tell everyone that I'm Marshall Poe, the editor in chief of the uh, New Books Network and I really hope you enjoyed our interview with Alan Salkin and I uh, hope everybody tunes in next week. Take care.